Welcome to Ghosts Were People Too, a podcast that investigates ghosts through the lens of the arts and humanities. I'm Quest in the editing room, still my car. Annabelle's voice from the recent past will join me shortly. In case you missed it for any reason, this is part two of our episode on the art of Angela Dean, a contemporary artist who paints ghosts onto found photographs. In part one, we discussed photography as a medium and how it connects to presence, absence, and memory, spirit photography and its relationship to Angela Dean's work, and how photographs serve as ruins or artifacts of times gone by. If you're done dwelling on the past, though, please join us in part two as we continue to look at Angela Dean's ghost paintings and the haunting sense of nostalgia they evoke. So as we move into more of the conceptual side of nostalgia, I want to keep in mind how we're connecting this to artistic practice. In his article, Smith forwards the notion of the photographic subject not as a visual, but as a symbol. And I think that that's just something that we can kind of keep in mind as we move forward. This, I think, was one of the most interesting pieces by Dean to me, and it's also a very old piece. When we were talking about the ease with which you can make all of these things and the role that capitalism might play, I was intrigued by how many of the pieces were dated to 2019, 2020, 2021, mm -hmm. and the idea that maybe this was something that was easy for her to do during pandemic life. But this piece is from 2012. It's titled All of Us Plus Me. Now, I don't know if this is her own photo. I feel like she would have said something about that or just another found photo. But it is definitely a more recent photo. I would say that this is probably 90s. Yeah. It's a pool in a suburban location. It could be a public or hotel pool. Yeah, and there are a bunch of kids in the pool, although only one of them is still visible. The others are painted as ghosts, and it looks like they were gathered together to take this picture. I actually, I have a picture or a series of pictures very similar to this from a birthday party when I was a toddler. And funny enough, this just brought up a memory for me. I actually cut my face out of one of the group pictures because I think I wanted to use it for something else. Like, I think I, I pasted it into another picture or into a book or something. But the picture that I have of my birthday party is all of my, it's almost the opposite of this. It's all of my friends, their faces are there, and then my face is missing. And in this case, there's one kid with all of their friends or pool mates <laughs> painted as ghosts. So I resonate with this quite a bit. <laughs> well, and this is, she does have some more variance or variation when you look at her older works. There are some where like, because the person is wearing like a big, like A-line kind of skirt, the ghost just is a like wearing a skirt. Or mm -hmm. sometimes she has ghosts in different colors, usually like uh, primary or sometimes pink. But this is one of the only ones where there is a subject revealed while others are ghostly. And I think that that's just a really interesting concept as we think about 
the ways we interact with the photos, the way these people in the photos might interact with her work. Mm -hmm. And again, like presence and absence. Now, none of these people are present, but one is kind of more present than the others Mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. And what does that say in terms of us inserting our own emotions and memories into the space? Yeah. And I also think about like the notion of I am still with me, even when these people are not with me anymore. Mm -hmm. They, at this time, are memories, but I, to myself, am never exactly memory. Right. I feel almost an affinity with the person whose face is visible in this. I see more of a reflection in it than I do in the ghosts, and yet... In all the other photographs, I would say that I see more of my own psyche in the ghosts. So it's very interesting. It's disruptive to have a a face in the photos. So now we move to a section that I titled Wish You Were Here, where we discuss leisure photography, nostalgia, and the ever-so-cheery topic of the sinking middle class. Returning to Angela Dean, she says, Much of my work has been tied to memory. How do we hold it? Can we define what it is now that it once was? Ever-present is a playfulness intertwined with nostalgia, the sweet married to the bittersweet. Simple yet evocative, my series of painting on found materials taught me a lot about visual restraint, about the power of less. And that's a section from her artist statement. So I thought it would be helpful for us to define nostalgia, because I think it's an emotion that we are all familiar with. But it's a concept that has been discussed so heavily in so many different ways that I think it's important for us to understand where it comes from and what it is. So different authors define nostalgia in different ways. But one of my favorites that I read in my research was by Jennifer Kitson and Kevin McHugh in Historic Enchantments, Materializing Nostalgia. And they write, Nostalgia is an enchantment with distance that cannot be bridged. And I really like that because it is reminiscent of the emotion of longing that comes with nostalgia. It's longing for the past that cannot come into the present. Do you ever yearn? Yearn? Do I yearn? (laughs) I yearn. You yearn? Oh, yes. Yes, I yearn. Often I, I sit and yearn. So a lot of my research on the topic of nostalgia and how it appears today in America is from The Hours Have Lost Their Clock by Grafton Tanner. And that's where I got this history of the term nostalgia. The term nostalgia originated in the 1680s with medical student Johannes Hofer, who found that Swiss soldiers stationed in the Alps suffered such a homesickness that some of them actually grew ill and died. So they wanted to go home so badly that it rendered them incapable of working or fulfilling any of their duties. Yeah, I mean, it ties to the notion that pain is biopsychosocial. Yeah, absolutely. And so from the beginning of the use of the term, nostalgia was considered an illness, a sickness. And it really isn't until more recently that we've started using the term just to generally 
talk about the emotion of that longing for home. Hofer wrote his dissertation on nostalgia in 1688, and then his mentors at the university popularized the idea in medical science, and more and more people began to study it. That being said, the emotion of nostalgia can be traced back as far as Homer's Odyssey. And the words nostos, which is the noun, um, nostimon imar, which is the adjective that means day of homecoming, and nosteo, which is the verb which means to make a homecoming, appear many, many times in the Odyssey. Nostos is one of the most frequently used nouns in the epic poem. And often when these words appear, they're in the context of pain, sadness, grief, and loss. So it's not just like talking about that's where my home is. It's like a longing for home that is thematically embedded in the Odyssey. And so therefore, the word nostos becomes almost synonymous with nostalgia. It's essentially the same idea. Another thing to consider is that we've used other words for this. So we've used the word homesickness, for example. And during the Civil War, soldiers were referred to as being homesick. And that could be an ailment that they had to deal with. Really, having a medical term simply solidified the emotion in popular consciousness. It didn't invent the emotion. People have always had the propensity to long for something in the past that they can no longer get to. Something that's interesting in Tanner's work is that he talks about how nostalgia has been treated as a primarily negative thing. But there are also positives to the emotion of nostalgia. It's something we can't get rid of. It's just a basic human emotion. And so there are positives, negatives, and also paradoxes when it comes to experiencing this emotion. So first, the negatives. Of course, it was initially considered a sickness. So something that is causing people to become so ill that they can't function is obviously bad PR for nostalgia as an idea. We've had to kind of give it a makeover for <laughs> in, in science for it to, to become something considered positive. And outside of the medical field, people tend to associate nostalgia with conservatism, kitsch, and backward sentimentality. It's, it's been weaponized by politicians, it's been commodified, and these are generally considered negative uses of the emotion. It's also associated with, and to quote Tanner, a failure to remember the past correctly or a failure to move on, end quote. Nostalgia tends to come up when people are feeling out of control. They might look to a past that seems more concrete and more anchored. And so that can be associated with negative emotions, right? People trying to create a false sense of control. And then it can also trick you into thinking a time period was better than it was. So we were talking about memories of summer. Memory tends to work in that way where we look at a lot of the positive things. And especially when you're not particularly stable in your present, it's easy to look at the past, long for something that wasn't necessarily any better than the present and sometimes even worse. 
the last thing that's generally considered negative about nostalgia, although there are many things, but this is the the last I'm going to mention, is that keeping the public in this like state of cozy, nostalgic reverie can generate a mass amnesia. So it's not just, you know, thinking of your summer camp as better than it was or your summer vacation as better than it was. It's an entire population thinking that an entire time period was better than it was. Sometimes not even a specific time period, sometimes just the general past. And so that can be a way that people are manipulated and it can keep people from realizing truths that if found out could, quote, stoke the flames of revolution. So it can make us sleepy, like uh, to go back to the Odyssey, like the Lotus Eaters. Yeah. What was really interesting for me, I was going on a bit of a face journey while you were talking about this, just because when you said it was originally treated as an illness, I was thinking, oh, wow, it's so interesting that nowadays nostalgia is so much, it's an affect. Mm -hmm. It is something that's really leaned into. But then I was thinking, but that's not the feeling of nostalgia. That is a commodified version of nostalgia that now has kind of come to replace the feeling we refer, because I was thinking, oh God, I was having so many thoughts and I won't give you all of them, but I, I talk sometimes about how right now our like fashion moment is like we've got 70s nostalgia, 80s nostalgia, 90s nostalgia, aughts nostalgia, and 10s nostalgia at the same time completely soaring past the 20 or 30 year nostalgia cycles that have been generally observed within our culture. And then you brought up that nostalgia is usually evoked when people are feeling out of control, which I think will wrap up into our general thesis here a lot. But good lord, are we in a time where the average person feels extremely out of control and also, and I don't mean this to like deprive people of their agency or autonomy, but like very much our desires or what we're told we desire are being puppeteered by big business. Yeah, nostalgia has definitely become commercialized and We'll definitely have to talk more about this when we get into the 2010s and beyond and where we are at with nostalgia right now. But you're absolutely right. And Tanner has some ideas about why it is that people feel out of control right now. But I'm sure, listeners, you're thinking of a whole list of reasons why you might be feeling this instability and why you might be longing for the past. But this book really had me thinking a lot about my own relationship with nostalgia and the ways in which I engage in these various types of nostalgia. So yeah, it's very resonant. And if I can contribute one more connection that I'm making the other thing that people often evoke when they're feeling a lack of control, that's when people dip into conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. That's when people dip into magic. And that's when people dip into occultism. And so I think that there's also definitely a connection between that feeling, which evokes nostalgia sometimes and also brings forth the ghosts. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. 
So let's touch on a few positives Please, of nostalgia. God, we need them. And then we'll get into the gray areas, the paradoxes. So some positives. Studies have shown... What studies? I don't know. You can look them up. <laughs> but Studies cited by Tanner, I hope. Yes, they are. Psychologists have said that nostalgia can act as a very important coping strategy to heal pain and grief and loneliness and even homesickness. So it's an emotion that has a function. I guess all emotions have functions, but considering the fact that we didn't really see this as a core emotion until maybe the... 17 or 1800s and even then it was studied as an illness seeing the the functionality of nostalgia is is important to put things in context of course having a vagina and uterus was considered an illness so pretty much everything was considered an illness in the 19th century another thing related to this is that people carry objects of nostalgia to ease anxiety so keepsakes and things like that social psychologists affirm its health benefits as i just said there's also this concept that grafton tanner talks about called radical nostalgia which is this idea of drawing on home and roots and ordinary life primitive themes, not as a way to keep the masses asleep, but as a way to disrupt, uh, quote, technocentric and exclusionary landscapes of modernity, end quote. So one example he gives is the ghost dance, which originated with the Paiutes and then was interpreted by the Lakota. And it's an example of radical yearning. So yearning towards a past as a utopian gesture towards an anti-colonial future. So we are going to see, or we have been seeing a lot of this recently with people making attempts to rewrite the history books that have told really limiting stories. He also gives the example of people thinking of Martin Luther King Jr. as like a Santa Claus type figure, (sighs) like quite literally just this jolly simple, peaceful guy. And there's now a new nostalgia being written for the more radical Martin Luther King. Yeah. And and that's a way that we can use this emotion to make positive change. And I think that as we, and this might come up in your paradoxes, but this has been on my mind because recently I was doing some work on the concept of utopia. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about this recently as well. But this idea that nostalgia can be used for positives but has negative possibilities, I think, connects to the idea of utopia as something to strive toward, but you don't actually want to achieve. You don't want to go back and live in these past time periods or past phases of your life. That would be regressive. That would have problems. But to look back at them and find ideals within them right looking back at what we have lost where we have maybe gone off track and yearning for those ideals as you said rather than yearning for something that is either destructive or never happened in in, and is creating a more restrictive future Mm -hmm. so that brings us into paradoxes One thing that Tanner mentions is that what feels good 
isn't necessarily what is good for people or society. So nostalgia can promote good health and can make people feel very secure in an insecure time. But that's not always for the greater good. Sometimes people need to feel a sense of instability and insecurity for positive change to occur. And as we've kind of been saying, it's not always good or always bad. It's all based on the way that it's used. Here on Ghosts for People too, we love nuance. (laughs) Yes, we do. Absence, presence, good, bad. We also love um, the nuance between binaries. And then lastly, it's, I think I also mentioned this, so this is kind of a reiteration, but it's an emotion that we can't banish from the human experience. So as much as people might want to bash nostalgia for its potential pitfalls, it's not going away. And so we might as well look at ways that it can be used for radical change or for comfort or even just for aesthetic pleasure. Can't forget that. That's yeah. that's not a crime. <laughs> right. One last defining structure for nostalgia is this idea of restorative versus reflective nostalgia. So Tanner cites Svetlana Boim's work on this idea of restorative versus reflective nostalgia. I thought this was a really interesting framework for talking about Angela Dean's work, because I have a particular idea of where she falls in this, and I think it'll be obvious, but just listen to these ideas and you decide for yourself. So restorative nostalgia is a desire to reclaim what has been lost by any means necessary. So it it will not accept the futility of this effort. We will reclaim the lost past no matter what. And restorative nostalgia privileges heritage over history. There's a fear also of the present moment as dangerous. So we are living in a depraved and dangerous present reality that we need to go to the past to fix. Tanner cites examples of this restorative nostalgia as the nostalgia of national treasure. I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. And the Da Vinci Code. And of course, far-right neo-fascist conspiracy groups. We're very familiar with this type of nostalgia politically right now. And and so I guess I, I just I put this in, but I thought this was a very funny and potent example of restorative nostalgia. Tanner mentions the botched art restorations, the Ecce Homo fresco by Elias Garcia Martinez, which is the more I think the more famous yeah. botched art if restoration. Just remember that painting, the restoration that went bad and ended up looking like a monkey. Mm-hmm. That's this one, listeners. The point here is that when when you see restorative nostalgia go bad, it's very obvious yeah. how futile it is. Futile. <laughs> futile. <laughs> futile of the people. It's You realize how futile it is. And this is an example of a, a very humorous failed attempt to try and restore the past. And so then this restorative nostalgia is in counterpoint to reflective nostalgia. Correct. So reflective nostalgia takes itself 
less seriously. It's a playful attempt to recognize the distance between past and present with elements of mourning and melancholia mixed with ambiguity, contradiction, and subversion. So there is space for irony in reflective nostalgia. And I think by default, at least from my political perspective, reflective nostalgia seems a lot better. But Tanner warns that it can also result in an apolitical or detached kind of nostalgia. So think of the hipsters of the 2010s who were so ironic that they had absolutely no political affiliation and were totally useless. Which is also why hipster aesthetics were so easily commodified. Right. That was going to be the next thing I said is that it, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it has to be apolitical because it has to be marketable to everybody. And, and that's a reflective nostalgia because it is ironic. And then also he gives the example of trolls who produce electronic music celebrating neo-Nazis. So it can be also this sort of explosive irony that is used as a weapon. And, and you can also think of some of the memes that were going around on 4chan during the rise of the... What do we even call them now? I almost said the Tea Party. I'm so old. Um, during the rise of the alt-right movement. Right. I mean, right now we're dealing with so much weird nostalgia culture in general. But I think about that. Men spend a lot of time thinking about ancient Rome stuff. Uh-huh. I think about the trad wife stuff i think about these alt-right memes that have gotten spread among people who don't know that they originated as alt-right yeah and what's really interesting to me when i look at the nostalgic memes of the alt-right is that it's so distant from my own personal feelings of nostalgia that sometimes it's almost illegible to me yeah and it makes me think of the subreddit the right can't meme <laughs> and i think it's all based on that idea that if you're looking from a more leftist political perspective at these memes they almost don't make any sense because you don't have the emotional impulse of the people who the memes are made by and for so i think that's also interesting that audience has a lot to do with the effectiveness of nostalgia yeah um so let's get into now and i think this will bring us back to angela dean as well i wanted to quote grafton tanner's what i consider his thesis in the introduction to The Hours Have Lost Their Clock, because I think it really clearly explains his perspective when it comes to why we are so nostalgic today and why it's taken over our culture. He writes, quote, This aching hunger for the past, nostalgia, is the defining emotion of our time. Although there's plenty of anger to be found online, despair is everywhere. And fear fuels politics. Nostalgia eclipses them all. Political leaders are always promising a return to yesteryear, when things were simpler, less unstable. Media corporations flood streaming platforms with remakes and reboots. Outdated styles are constantly being repackaged, 
reimagined, and retooled to sate present thirsts. It seems the farther we march into the future, the stronger nostalgia grows. My eyes are like bulging out of my head. I need to read <laughs> this is the answer. This sounds incredible. I just ordered a hard copy to um, <laughs> to be delivered to my house. Can you believe it? This technology these days. The postman. The postman is going to bring it to me and I will bring it to you. You can borrow it, my dear. Okay, let's let's talk about the 2010s, though. So this, I think, is kind of a hot take, but I also resonate with it. So you tell me what you think. And listeners, we'd be happy to hear your take on this as well. That's GWP2Pod at... (laughs) Gmail.com. So Tanner says that in the 2010s, people, quote, started experiencing time differently than they... (laughs) Your face, holy shit. Started experiencing time differently than they used (laughs) to... (laughs) i don't know if i can do it (laughs) okay people quote started experiencing time differently than they used to so why did they start experiencing time differently so why did they start experiencing time differently (laughs) good question So Tanner says that while news stories seem to come more quickly than ever, quote, culture and politics seemed to stop completely, end quote. And now I don't think he's I think he's using that word seemed very carefully there because I don't think he's suggesting that there was no culture and there were no politics or that we hit pause on all political activity. I think he's suggesting that the conversations started to sound repetitive. Everything seemed to just be a reiteration of what politics had already been. And so there wasn't this sensation that anything was new. Yeah. A thing that I think a lot is with regard to fashion, mm-hmm. with how you know fashion now is reiteration, reiteration. Nowadays, you could go on the street wearing a full Victorian outfit. And while you would get some weird looks, you would not get stopped in the street, you know? Yeah. Whereas if you wore things that would show the amount of skin that we do now or have certain gender norms that we have now, like women wearing pants, which listeners, I need you to understand that when my mom went to school, there were rules about how many times a girl could wear pants to school, like a week. And so if you broke any of those conventions back then in previous time periods, you could not, you couldn't have a viable social life. Whereas nowadays, you could do anything that has been done before. And so it's harder to imagine new places that fashion, for example, can go. Yeah. And I love looking at fashion for that reason, because I think it's such a visible entry point into the politics of nostalgia and the art artistry of nostalgia as well. The last thing that Tanner cites as a reason for time feeling different in the 2010s is the grim future. And I guess you could argue that this has been around for a while and that every generation has its own version 
of the impending apocalypse. But for people of the 2010s in particular, climate and what Tanner calls, quote, neoliberal austerity made any sense of a future seem grim. Meanwhile, entertainment, quote, stopped trying and gave consumers nostalgia instead. So you have this combination of a distaste for looking forward towards any sort of future and a commodification of the past for the reason that the past was more sure and easy to sell than any sort of future. I think this is a really interesting perspective. I think as somebody who came into adulthood during this decade, it resonates a lot. And I think there was a pervading sense of uncertainty as to what the decade would mean in the future. Talking about fashion, I think there was a lot of discussion of we're imitating this, this, and that. We're imitating the 80s, which at the time was the the big thing. We're imitating the 50s. What are people going to be imitating in the 2010s? And there was a sense that there was nothing particular about that era. Right. Yes. Which, of course, every era to some degree, you know, you don't know what its je ne sais quoi is until right. it's passed. And, and now the Tumblr girlies of the present are telling us what what we should be nostalgic for in yeah. 2014 or whatever. But I think it's also interesting to consider this, given the political atmosphere. I don't really have a lot that I do want to add on this because I think that, A, we'll probably explore it more and B, I think it stands on its own two feet. What I just want to contribute is the idea that with the 2016 U.S. election being considered such a big, historic, important moment, there has been so much reflection in the years since to try and figure out like how we got there, why we got there, how all of this happened, what bed was made, mm-hmm. and the idea that we are already (laughs) reflecting on it to try and disentangle those threads, it does, I think, add a certain poignancy to what Tanner has to say that I might otherwise be a little bit disinclined to say, like, well, it's maybe a little too early to conclude that. Like, the 2010s were not that long ago. Right. But Well, and I removed it from the notes because I didn't want to have, like, extensive play-by-play explanations of what he writes about in the book. And you definitely should go and read it. It's fascinating. But he goes on to talk about how the response to this sense of there being nothing to hang on to in terms of the way we were engaging with time in the 2010s was to try and make everything an event. Don't miss the Dallas Mower Expo! Be Everything is the big event. It's happening now. And he says it's mostly a consumerist impulse. It's mostly to make money. But it drove the way that we were living our lives. This is also the rise of social media. Facebook events were still a thing. So like yeah. everything was the big event well, of the year. I even think to try about... and create landmarks in a time where we felt like there was nothing there was like one, it was like the blue supermoon or something. And everybody <laughs> kept framing it like this is the one time in your life you're yeah. going to see this. And now, as is more realistic, it's like every three months or whatever, there's a supermoon. And it's like, 
the eclipse in 2019 was that it yeah I or 20 maybe it was earlier 2017 I, I was like i was that, student teaching that, at the time so it was probably closer to 2017 okay. yeah that that was definitely also a momentous eclipse like we haven't lived through a shit ton of they, they sold a lot of those glasses and i think it's also <laughs> interesting to consider how all of this then Im- is impacted by the how the COVID-19 pandemic played into all of this and changed the sense of time once again, right on the tail of the 2010s. Yes. And if you haven't read How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell, I was very excited to see that Grafton Tanner actually cited her work in this book. But she also just put out a book about time that I was hoping to read for this podcast. And I I ran out of time. (laughs) Um, But she I think she really speaks to that shift in her work, and how isolation and the act of being removed from the world and then coming back into it can really have a, a huge impact on the way you experience time. So yeah definitely mm-hmm. recommend jenny odell so another thing that tanner writes about that is just a talk about a pet interest of mine way beyond spirit photography i love reading about space space not outer space but like the spaces that we move around in in the world and how they can be haunted <laughs> tanner writes about this concept of non-places in his chapter in search of lost space and time and he cites mark fisher who has written a lot about hauntology and depression and also i have one of his books coming to me in the mail tanner quotes mark fisher who says places are stained with particularly intense moments of time that it is this staining that gives a place the feeling of being haunted I think that Dean's work reflects these places that are definitely stained with intense moments of time, whether it is a living room at Christmas time in a particular era or Disneyland, which is permanently stained by the mid-century and ideals related to the mid-century in America. On the other hand, there's this idea of non-places, and I don't think unless I haven't seen particular photos, I I don't think that Angela Dean works so much with non-places, but I think she works with a cultural landscape that relies on them. So let me me explain what I mean by that. Uh, A non-place is a space developed for commerce where people come and go in anonymity without meaningful interaction. And when non-places die... Let's say a business goes out of business, a mall can't fill its spaces, it becomes a dead zone. Again, think abandoned malls, abandoned office buildings, retail spaces, places where people come and go as anonymous faces. The station and the metro. Really a lot of urban spaces that you you mentioned, like urban explorers, right? It's, It's very much those kinds of places. And I wonder if this is where antiquers and urban explorers diverge, because non-places have a different flavor 
and then when they become dead zones, well, an antique might be imbued with all of these nostalgic memories. Non-places are haunted by the people who passed through them anonymously. So there's really a lack of an ability to pin down a certain emotion or an attachment or an identity, and yet we still feel the presence of the people who once passed through. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I feel like, on the other hand, the antique as artifact, especially as artifact that has been like when you think about its provenance that it's been obtained and collected and is being resold does have attached to it the idea of what hands it's been passed through and it's haunted in that way right so there is still a level of anonymity to yes, it yes exactly but i guess maybe the haunt the hauntedness is in that inability to pin down an identity which also i think relates to dean because what she's doing is painting over specific identities, painting over faces to create a hauntedness. So I guess that's, a, I guess we're, we're just finding the, the connection more so than yeah. the diversion. Yes, definitely. Um, and, and so what I was saying about non-places being a part of the landscape of Angela Dean's artistic world is that the suburban world is full of non-places and dead zones, especially today. There are so many abandoned malls, so many abandoned office parks, places that support the nuclear family, support the lifestyle of the suburban family, but are now abandoned. And so although Dean does not feature these places, I think they kind of haunt the background of that world. And so I thought it was an interesting connection. There's there's, there's some connective tissue there. I think it's a little bit vague and I could develop it more, but I, I think you're nodding. So I think you're with me here. Yeah, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Good. <laughs> I couldn't have said that in a more stuffy way. <laughs> okay. I'm picking up what you're putting down. So finally... <laughs> Everything is the last. <laughs> but I think it is the last. Yeah, okay. So moving from these non-places, these haunted, abandoned, impersonal spaces to the domestic sphere, which is, in my opinion, where Angela Dean's work lives. Even places like carnivals and Disneyland and vacation are all sort of extensions of the domestic sphere. They're places where the family comes together to, to have leisure time, right? I found this article. I previewed this earlier. It has every buzzword known to academia. Oh, no. I read this title and I went, yes, it has everything. <laughs> but it's called Domesticity and Uncanny Kitsch. In the rhyme of the ancient mariner and Frankenstein. Yeah, I mean, like, that's like if you were, like, playing bullseye with, like, mid-20th century, like, scholarship. <laughs> what are... bullseye darts is what I mean. If you had... A... <laughs> or if you're playing pin the tail on Annabelle. Because <laughs> this is right up my alley. Hey, put that back at the bedroom. <laughs> 
Well, speaking of the bedroom, domesticity and kitsch. As I said earlier, I I believe that Dean's work has an element of kitsch that engages in reflective nostalgia. I actually didn't say that. I was like, you figure it out for yourself. But I I think her work very much is reflective nostalgia. There's kitsch, there's irony, there's playfulness. And she says so in her statement, more or less. Also, that's kind of the MO of ghosts for people, too. We kind of like leave it hanging and then we pick it up later and we're like, yeah, I said this, right? Yeah, totally. (laughs) We pick up what we put down. So and and I think um, as well as reflective nostalgia, Dean's work also engages with the gothic tradition. And I think this article brings all of that together indirectly, but I think really well. So first off, I just want to share what the Oxford Dictionary defines kitsch as because Sarah Webster Goodwin, who wrote Domesticity and Uncanny Kitsch, kind of refuses to define kitsch. She calls it undefinable, but then she gives some directives as to what it is. So the Oxford Dictionary says kitsch is, quote, art, objects, or design considered to be in poor taste because of excessive garishness or sentimentality, but sometimes appreciated in an ironic or knowing way. And part of why I think she is loath to define kitsch is because this undefinable nature is also a thing that comes up in camp studies a lot. And kitsch Mm. and camp are connected, as you can see in that Oxford English Dictionary definition. Yeah. And, And just so many things can fall into it, but it can also be used as an insult. So you have to be careful. Like Exactly. I, you know, I, earlier I was saying, I like this. This is not insulting, but I think this is kitschy. Goodwin says it can elude easy definition that it is art that is inauthentic in comparison with more quote unquote authentic serious art that it evolves from a post-industrial economy which represents art as a commodity but she also says that romanticism and kitsch developed at the same point in history which is where the rhyme of the ancient mariner and frankenstein come in we've touched on romanticism before, I think, in several episodes and even in this one. Romantic literature has this very formulaic, over-the-top, and also nostalgic quality to it. And at the same time, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner and Frankenstein are both works that are taught in school as classic literature and taken very seriously for their contribution to culture. And so there's a tension there between things that were created to be sold and to be consumed by mass audiences and things that are meant to be taken seriously as authentic art. So that's kind of the context in which I want to bring up these two pieces of Gothic literature. Goodwin says that in both of these pieces of literature, characters travel far from home on masculine coded voyages, both physical and metaphysical. So in the rhyme of the ancient mariner, the mariner is off on a ship going to distant lands, right? And then in Frankenstein, 
Dr. Frankenstein is... He's traveling all around Europe trying to evade the monster and eventually goes all the way to the North Pole. Right, exactly. And there's the frame story is all about the man who encounters him on his own journey, right? Right. So there's all of this very masculine, going on a voyage, thematic stuff going on. However, Goodwin argues that what haunts this poem and this novel is feminine power and the idea of home, the domestic sphere. Nostalgia. Yeah. And that domestic sphere, whenever it is alluded to or mentioned, is put into this category of very kitschy and less serious aspects of human life. She talks about the feminine ghost in The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, and she talks about family in Frankenstein, and of course, the typical interpretation, which is that Frankenstein represents the you know generative life force and the, the fear surrounding the ability of female anatomy to create life and all of those ideas that and there's also the more direct aspect that Victor eventually has to worry for the safety of his fiance while he is right away, which is like kitschy and less important than the big man stuff that he's dealing with in the in the novel. And so the point of bringing this up is that, well, let me share a quote. Goodwin writes, quote, high art historically needs to leave home. As art's uncanny double, kitsch must be repressed, silenced, kept out of sight in the work that aspires to seriousness. And she associates kitsch with femininity and with domesticity, these things that we have in our homes, that we bring into our homes. A lot of contemporary or even like modern kitsch art has to do with advertising and the art that appears on various household products and things like that, right? And so I think it's really interesting that Angela Dean, in my opinion, is claiming kitsch or reclaiming kitsch as a important, deep, feminine, domestic, all-at-once entity. Yeah, what's really interesting about discussing kitsch while we're also discussing nostalgia is that kitsch is such a big topic in art history from about the mid-20th century. Mm -hmm. When we discuss kitsch in art history, we are often talking about the period of pop art, often talking about Liechtenstein, and we're also often talking about the independent group. And one of my favorite artists of that historical moment is Richard Hamilton and his collage, Just What Is It That Makes Today's Homes So Different, So Appealing, Ah. makes a lot of statements about the way that gender is presented in advertisement. I was also thinking about How to Be Gay by David M. Halperin, which is kind of my Bible. Mm. And he talks in similar terms about the differences between leaving the home and staying in the home with the definition of melodrama versus like high drama. Mm -hmm. And that where conflict between fathers and sons is treated with seriousness in literature, conflict between mothers and daughters is not. That is why Mommy Dearest is a camp marvel instead of being 
serious and tragic. No wire hangers ever! Right. Well, and you know I love folk art. In fact, that might be one of my favorite things on this planet. And something that is beautiful to me about folk art is that it is something that can be done in the home by anybody. And you mentioned earlier in the podcast that you think of Angela Dean making these pictures during the pandemic. And although we have examples from 2012 and 2011, a lot of the photographs we have looked at today have been from 2020 on. And I think there's some power in imagining a person, a woman in her house going through these artifacts of the domestic world and putting her own gaze upon them. Yeah. And that was the other thing that the gendered aspect of kitsch is really interesting to consider here. And I would also just like to point out that if we think about the art of the pop art movement in the mid-20th century and late 20th century, and then Dean kind of making similar commentary, we are returning once again to the 2010s as a period that's just kind of rehashing things. Not a critique of Dean, but she's kind of once again participating in extant trends. Right. And then, of course, we have to think about how learning from the past has always been a part of art. Oh, yes, of course. And, and I know that sounds obvious, but I, I think it's easy to to think of the 2010s as a time when we were suddenly having to look to the past in order to right. create our a, a culture. But my mom always loves to talk about how in the 70s, her mom would look at her shoes and go, oh, my gosh, we were wearing those when I was a girl. Yeah. When I was a girl. <laughs> Um, so just to bring home this point, see what I did there? Bring home. <laughs> so while Victorian Gothic literature may have sometimes averted its gaze from the domestic sphere, although I can think of a whole list of ones that focused primarily on the domestic sphere, Angela Dean's work tends to focus on the places we once called home and with the cutesy sheet ghosts obscuring faces and haunting places, she exaggerates and celebrates the kitschiness of the domestic sphere. One could consider it a type of reclamation, as I mentioned earlier. I would just maybe qualify that by saying, since the photos are usually taken outdoors, mm -hmm. some of them are taken indoors, but most of them are taken outdoors and outside of the home on a trip often yeah. or at an event that I think there is a domestic and kitsch quality to photos, that the photo is a thing that belongs in the home, whereas oh, yeah. perhaps the subject matter of the photos that she uses are not homey necessarily. Yeah, or or that there's this, when I think of home, home is where the heart is quest. <laughs> Shit, you got me there. But quite literally, it's the feeling of homeliness. And that's where nostalgia as a sickness comes from also. There's a chapter I, I didn't really get into in Grafton Tanner's book where he talks about the origins of nostalgia in war and how soldiers would begin feeling nostalgic for home then they would become indoctrinated into the army 
And when they would go home, they would feel a nostalgia for the homeliness of being a part of the war effort. Right. It makes me think of the hero's journey. Yeah. Returning to home changed. Right. Yeah. And so I guess when I say I, I, I love the idea of the photographs being something that belongs in the home. You know, you mentioned your family albums. Yeah. They're definitely artifacts of domesticity. And oftentimes women are the ones who are collecting and scrapbooking and putting together these albums. But I also think there is a homeliness and a sense of belonging and a sweetness of family and childhood that comes with even the vacation photos outside Mm -hmm. the home. So that's an element as well. So returning to my research... This is Smith's object of research. I found other articles he published on this photographer. And I'm only bringing her up because to me, she serves as a case study for how photography and nostalgia interact. So Sean Seneda Stanley Emmons was a photographer. She was born in 1858. She died in 1937. She was from Maine and she mostly worked in New England and Appalachia Her photography focused on rural life. So we're looking at a photograph by her titled Aunt Hannah and Aunt Abigail that was taken in 1898 or 1899. These are not her aunts. Oh, but that gives a very homely feel to call them. Yeah, her photography is very rooted in Americana. And what I was explaining to Annabelle earlier when we were on a break is that one of the things that Smith focuses on in his chapter on her is the way that Emmons would come to the house of an older farming family and she would ask them to like bring out the spinning wheel from the attic, shuck corn by hand instead of using whatever gadget. She would stage these photos, as alluded to in some of the quotes I've used from Smith earlier, in ways that would participate in these antiquated, at the time that the photos were taken... Activities? Yeah, antiquated activities, antiquated means of doing this menial work Mm -hmm. that would then make this way of life that was already kind of dead look like it was under threat due to technology. Mm. Smith compares her photography to pastorals which served to romanticize the concept of farm life. He considers this in the context of American mythology regarding agrarianism, which promotes ideals of self-reliance, hard work, and a bootstraps mentality. And here we return yet again to the idea of a constructed mythology, a nostalgia for a past that never actually existed. Mm -hmm. And I always associate that concept. I just want to shout out the documentary i believe it is just called degenerate art which is about the entartete kunst exhibition from nazi era germany in which abstract and modern artists were being shown off as being degenerate due to the way that they painted Mm. meanwhile hitler and the nazi party were glorifying greco-roman ideals and creating this idealized past of a germany that never was it's a perfect example of political nostalgia exactly politicized nostalgia yeah and so while smith is not at 
all saying that Emmons is conservative or a white supremacist. In fact, he looks at her deconstructing race and racialized labor in some of her photography of black farm workers. She does kind of put forth this idea of Anglo-Saxon life in America being under threat due to modernization and immigration. Yeah. I will give you a couple quotes, and I'm sure that they will be very easily applied to Dean as we've discussed her. Emmons's photographs seem to mourn a moment that is passing. In this way, Emmons's images are more avowedly photographic, seizing upon the photograph's temporal disruption to frame a moment that forever oscillates between the past and the present, end quote. And, quote, Emmons's images, like all photographs, both expand and narrow a visual field. They bring the unseen to light by staging nostalgic scenes of a former time, drawing into view what is no longer present, a referent doubly removed from both the time of viewing and the time of making the image. And that last point was very important to me in considering Angela Dean and how she is removed from the original moment in which the photo was taken, and the date on her paintings can be a little disruptive because it's like this photo is printed on its side as saying 1966, but the art is dated 2020. Yeah, which makes me think of how reflective nostalgia is this playful attempt to recognize distance. So it's actually exaggerating that experience of distance when you see the discrepancy between the date on the photo and the date that the art was made. Yeah. And through his article, Smith notes that nostalgic photography can document something as if it is already gone. Smith considers this salvage photography, which was a term that I found particularly interesting in the context of Angela Dean's mixed media work. Yep. I mean, of course, there are still pool parties and vacations and families taking photos in front of Morrow Rock. And all of these things are still elements of contemporary culture. And yet salvaging is so much of what she does. It just a, this is a little bit off the rails, but uh, <laughs> when are what we do you on expect? Them? Yeah. Um, it, that makes me think of our discussion of the dichotomy of antiquers and urban explorers. And I think something that's kind of interesting is that antiques have this very easy way of being salvaged. They can go from person to person and hand to hand very easily. On the other hand, the abandoned places are not so easily reclaimed or reused. Right. So there's a, a, I think in some ways, and you could think of this also in terms of the domestic versus going out. The And, and ooh, I think I may have landed on something here. <laughs> okay. Urban explorers, in a very masculine-coded way, go out into the world to discover oh, shit. the ghosts of the past. Antiquers go out and bring their items into their homes. or And they don't go very far, usually. Or if they do, it's into neighborhoods and, and places that are considered very uh, feminine-coded yeah, spaces. Yeah. Stores, 
Right. And I mean, when I was thinking about it initially, the first thing that came to my mind was the concept of risk. So like, of course, there is a difference between them. I just think it's interesting. Part of what I was getting at by bringing that up was the idea that these very disparate practices are seeking the same thing. Right. And so it is interesting to bring up the idea of masculinized and feminized performance performance of nostalgia i'm what is so funny is um learning how broad of a category performance can be in scholarship i mean judith butler gender is a performance like every aspect of life can be i guess that makes sense yeah so smith refers to the scholarship of malcolm chase and christopher shaw and this concept that Nostalgia emerges when one feels that the present is deficient, quote. And what I also wanted to bring up was, quote, Chase and Shaw explain that in these critical relationships to the present, the photograph can function as a powerful talisman of how things used to be, providing a measure of how much has changed. In this understanding, the photograph offers a stable and accurate representation of the past that viewers imbue with nostalgia as they long for what has been lost. And so these comments also, I will just plug episode 7, Ghostbusters Part 1, we discuss a different kind of nostalgia, totemic Mm -hmm. nostalgia, Mm -hmm. which relates a lot to the restorative nostalgia that we've discussed and the political means it often is meant to serve. I just wanted to comment on how I find it so interesting that nostalgia often has some sort of totem or structure, whether it's a ruin of a building or a preserved building or a photograph, which, although less tangible, is a more surefire way of freezing a moment in time. Look at this photograph! Yeah, so... In his discussion of nostalgia in Emmons' photography, Smith brings up ideas of romanticization and anxiety. Since we talk about monster studies here, I felt like anxiety was important to return to. He states that the pastoral genre romanticizes farm life, and he also argues, as I stated before, that Emmons' work utilizes nostalgia to express a racialized anxiety, a fear of Anglo-Saxon decline in an era of immigration. We've already discussed what the connection between nostalgia and romanticization is. I was curious just about the connection between nostalgia and anxiety, which we've also discussed. So we're really just wrapping up into ourselves here. Yeah, I'd just like to shout out a book that I was not able to finish before this episode. I came across this book called Resisting Change in Suburbia by James Zarsadius. And this book is about Asian immigrants in the San Gabriel Valley and also the frontier nostalgia that built that suburbia. I think it's really interesting to think about how white flight is driven by both nostalgia and anxiety and also how suburbia has been built up on nostalgia and now is an object of nostalgia, especially in the suburbs of Los Angeles. There's a lot of frontier myths surrounding those places. And from the part of this book that I was able to read before recording this podcast, the author is talking about how 
this idea of the San Gabriel Valley as a ranching place and a place to get away from the cities and of orange groves, which is very similar to the San Fernando Valley where we grew up. That really built the suburbia that later came to be in that area. And so returning to suburban space and nostalgia, I want to start to wrap things up with the idea of leisure photography. Mm -hmm. After photography moved out of the studio and before it achieved the hyper-portability of the smartphone, consumers generally participated in the act of leisure photography. 20th century photography was innately tied to the notion of the passing moment. Now that the public was empowered to do so, they generally aimed their lenses at extraordinary moments, festive or momentous occasions, vacation and recreation, and the aging of children. When I originally made that list, I wanted to like use the aging of children as a caveat that like that was a time when sometimes everyday life would be captured more because oh god, we gotta fill the baby book, oh god, you know, do we have a picture of her while she's still 16? Mm -hmm. But that is still extraordinary in its way. We, you know, find the aging of adults less remarkable, or at least less polite to remark upon. Yeah, talk about big events. We every Every stage in a child's life feels like such a big event because they, like you said, develop so quickly and change so rapidly. Harvey notes... Quote, the juxtaposition of the commonplace and the incongruous in spirit photography, which I felt was a very important thing to think about with regards to Angela Dean and yeah. leisure photography. Considering Dean's focus on leisure photography, while the setting of her found photos may be commonplace, there's also a momentous or extra daily quality due to the photographic context. Yeah, this is the moment that we had on vacation. Yeah. I pulled a couple photos. Here's a piece called Happy Birthday to You, which has a couple of Angela Dean's ghosts at a birthday party with a cake. Milling Around David, which shows her ghosts observing Michelangelo's David. Banquet Table, which is clearly the banquet table at a wedding. Campers, it's a camping scene. And Christmas Roller Skates, which is, I think, the last photo I really wanted to focus on. It is very faded. We have ghosts observing one ghost trying on Christmas Roller Skates. And you can tell how dated these decorations are. Mm -hmm. I would say probably mid to late 60s for the photo, just based on the decor. Yeah, and how the the quality it's yellowed in a way that looks really familiar yeah for that era and so these are all her putting these ghosts into the settings of the extra daily mm -hmm. these moments that were considered important enough to be photographed and yet are still part of the fabric of everyday life yeah and so we walk that line the thing is i did promise you the disappearance of the middle class and i hope that perhaps through our research you can see how that comes into play yeah i i was in some way tasked with doing the research on this end of nostalgia and the disappearing middle class but ended up going down such a rabbit hole with nostalgia and finding so many implications that reflected that, that it, it almost seemed a little bit excessive. 
But I, I think we can see that people are longing for the impression of stability that came with post-war America, the baby boomer generation. And, you know, you see a lot of anger across generations that's founded on this idea that things were so much better and easier back then. And I'm not an economist or a... That was exactly why I thought that maybe it was better we didn't do that research specifically, because there are so many sources that would be better than us to get information on that. But I think that what Angela Dean is doing in her art is while these works mourn the passing moment in some way by putting ghosts, which we've hardly even touched upon in some <laughs> ways, by putting ghosts into these photos, yes, it is the the passing moment. It is these past eras, but also when we look at the moments that were elevated, and also, I mean, we have to keep in mind the curatorial aspect of her work. She is choosing which photos to paint on. Right. That the ones she has chosen are these momentous occasions, typically, or moments of leisure. And we are brought face to face with the idea that those are moments that are now fleeting, that are maybe passing. It's a haunted ephemerality. Yeah. I find that in an era of increasing wage disparity and a threatened middle class, Angela Dean's photography both romanticizes an era of leisure photography and brings forth anxieties about the contemporary moment. By painting ghosts on these found photos, artifacts of a bygone age, beloved mementos put up for sale, Dean points out that these moments have passed, and prompts the viewer to ask themselves where they stand when it comes to leisure and celebration. When did you last take a vacation? Could you afford to have a wedding or birthday party as lavish as this? Yeah, that's a, a really great point. And I think there's also more to be explored that we don't have time for when it comes to the way, I guess we touched on this, but the way that photographs are taken, the feeling of a photograph being momentous in an age where photographs can be taken by anybody at any time, all the time. And I think the photo as artifact itself, as you were saying with photo albums and domesticity, in this case, the photo is an artifact in itself is an object of nostalgia because it's, it's, it's a marker of time that doesn't have the same weight that it once did. Yeah. So... We chose this episode for our holiday episode instead of more obvious choices like A Christmas Carol because the holidays are a time of nostalgia and they're a time of gathering with loved ones, whether that's your biological family, chosen family. They're also a time where you, if you have access, might go and pull out old family photos and look through photo albums and reminisce. Yeah. There are also times, as we talk about economic disparity, that it's a time for giving, and we... In the spirit of giving, we're giving you this episode. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I really can be sincere. It's just very hard with a microphone in front of my face. It's very understandable. I thought what you were going to say is this is also a time when people are feeling melancholia and despair and homesickness because the holidays don't always look like a 1960s 
Christmas picture. Right. It's There's both the lack of connection can be brought to light and also, honestly, perfectionism. Yeah. It can be a struggle around the holidays. So if you're listening to this, know that we are in the ether with you. Hang in there, baby. And Ghosts for People 2 is around. If you want to talk to us about ghosts in media and the arts, you can email us at gwp2pod at gmail.com. I promise I got that right the first time, and I didn't have to record it after the fact and stick it in later. No siree. That didn't happen with the email address that we say every episode. Or you can find us on Tumblr, also at ghosts for people too and on instagram at ghosts Ghosts for for people People too shocking i know and if it were a better time i would have something better to say at the end of this episode (laughs) rate and review us as you hopefully know to do if you're a podcast listener only remember the good parts of this episode (laughs) as you rate and review And as it says on the Ouija board, Happy Holland Days. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>